You're listening to Out Here, a podcast about building a life, a community, and relationships at the end of the road in McCarthy, Alaska. I'm Erin McKinstry. On episode five, Living with the Wild. I think out here when it's quiet and there's no one here, you definitely feel your relationship to the world more and how kind of small you are and how insignificant all the little problems of the world are. Um, You know, there's nothing to distract you. So you're just sort of looking at nature and you can sort of feel your place in it more. People don't like to talk about that, you know, about how we're on this spinning planet, just alone in space. But I think out here, people are more apt to talk about it, and it's hard to describe in words. Yeah. But when you're looking up at the moon and you just can you feel this sort of your, your spot in the world a little bit more. I remember the first time I climbed a mountain here. It was a bluebird day, the kind that sharpens everything around you. And climbing through overgrown willows, I sang to myself in the bears, checking a few piles of scat to see if they were still warm, and they weren't. And then I got above treeline, crossed a bit of snow, scrambled to the top of a ridge, and looked out over the edge. No more singing, no more boot stomping, No wind to speak of, and the quiet was immense. Before me stood Mount Blackburn, rising above 16,000 feet, and everywhere I looked, there were mountains. Suddenly I understood in a way that I never had before how landscape is formed. I could see how the root glacier spilled off of one of the world's largest icefalls, converged with two other glaciers, and pushed down valley to form the Kennecott River. Everything here is so raw, so new, that geological history hasn't yet been weathered away. You can see it in action. Sitting on that ridge line, I felt so alone and yet so full. So much a part of something greater. I started to cry, actually. And that's when I fell in love. This place had fished me out of a sea that I didn't even know I was swimming in. A lot of people's relationship with McCarthy and the area starts with the natural surroundings. And the more you're around the mountains, the more you get a feeling of camaraderie with, for, and want to live near them. You cannot talk to one person who doesn't say something about the mountains and the glaciers and the, the bigness, the broadness of it. And I saw McCarthy on a map in the middle of a huge national park at the base of a glacier in the Wrangell Mountains, and I thought, hmm, i got to go check that out. There are places in Alaska where you can live in ways that are very akin to a time gone by that is so foreign to 
modern life, but is so much more connected to the land around you in a, in a physical and a spiritual way. That <sighs> the, the clean air, the clean water. I mean, you th- these basic things that we take for granted in Alaska, when you travel outside of Alaska, when you go to where there's a lot of people, you're, you're, the air is not clean. The water is not clean. Um, the sky is not clear. The stars aren't as bright. Well, it's not totally unspoiled. There are remote places in Alaska where mining and drilling have had an impact, and climate change is making human influence almost impossible to ignore. And yet, at least for now, we still have wildness out here. We still have a connection to the natural world that's easy to escape in many other parts of the United States. The landscape, the weather, the wildlife, the changing seasons, it's all in your face. On episode five, Living with the Wild, we'll discuss the relationship between the people who live here and the natural world. What's it like carving a space in a place surrounded by 13 million acres of preservation? A place that's harsh, remote, and full of things that remind you that you aren't always the biggest, baddest kid on the block. If you run around the hills prospecting and then as a guide or you just live remote like this, uh, wildlife is a factor in uh, maybe not everyday life, but it's a regular occurrence. Encounters with bears, wolves, moose, and you can have a hard time with any of them. Part one, awareness. Here's Mark Fail. I had a friend once who hiked from the house here out to the road and got warm going up the hill to the road. Well, there was a stiff breeze blowing and she took off her jacket because she'd gotten warm and she jogged a mile and a half down the road, but the wind was at her back. And when she turned back into the wind to come home, the wind was at her face. So the wind chill got her and she got hypothermic. And fortunately she made it back to her jacket which she'd left on the trail and she got her jacket back on. But she was so exhausted, she laid down on the trail and took a nap, which could have been deadly. You know, because oftentimes they'll find people frozen to death without their full gear on is because they've done something like that where they made the mistake and then gotten super chilled I mean there's this edge about living out here that you have to be careful of you know you don't want to go over that edge out here you live so much of your life outside Trudging to the outhouse, going logging, spending time in the garden, even just going out to the freezer. And because of that, because so much of your existence is with the natural world and sometimes even depends on it, you have to be more aware of it. You definitely need to be prepared for all kinds of situations. That's something I've learned through experience. And you have to pay attention. Here's Kristen Link. 
you're really connected to your surroundings because that's where your resources come from. So you know how much water you use and like what the water supply is. You know, like when all the snow melts, like the water gets dirty. And so I try and like get water before that happens or I try and use electrical devices while the sun's out. So I always know when the sun's out and how powerful it is. It forces you to be in sync with your surroundings and that's important to me. Obviously, people feel seasonal changes everywhere where there's seasons. Um, You might switch from hiking to skiing, or you might have to switch from regular tires to studded. But here, almost everything you do, your daily existence, is shaped by those changes. The way I refrigerate things changes from summer to winter because I don't have an actual refrigerator. When spring breakup comes, my mode of transportation switches from snow machine and river to three-wheeler and road. And when the daylight wanes in December, I spend more time inside, reading, writing, inside my own head. Because there's no street lights, no coffee shops, no bars to escape to. We adapt our lifestyles to fit within the cycles of the outside world. If there's a really good raspberry year, I'll make a lot of raspberry jam, more than I can eat in a year. But the next year, the rabbits might come back and have eaten all the raspberry tips, so there are no raspberries the next year. So it's like when there's an abundance, you learn how to preserve that abundance. When so much depends on life outside, climate change becomes inescapable. The rivers freeze later and break sooner. We've had strange rain events in the middle of December, and many of the glaciers all over the park have shrunk incredibly 10 years isn't really enough time to say like if the climate's changed or not, but it seems like the winters have gotten warmer and we've had these crazy Chinook events more often um, than we used to. And it's, yeah, it has huge impacts because it impacts our ability to get around, to be able to get water, to go to town, to see other people. That awareness makes me question my part in all of it. What can I do to be better? What can I do to waste less, to use less gas, to use the resources around me rather than bringing things in? I think the more that you're connected with your surroundings and the resources around you, the more that you're interested in conserving them. But even out here, maybe especially out here, I don't know, that can be hard. It's easy to click that button on Amazon. And if you need to resupply, that takes 16 hours of driving, which leads to part two, subsistence or not. (laughs) Here, where climate change is visible, where the natural world creeps inside even if you don't want it to, and where stores and modern conveniences are far away, it would only make sense to try to live off the land. Here's Stevens Harper. And I love the concept of using resources that are close to where you are to sustain your life. There's a sustainability beauty to it, but there's also very much a, a personal satisfaction and a spiritual beauty to, to, to living like that. It's, I think it's very fulfilling. And yet... I used to hunt for meat, for food, in the fall. And now I'm a park ranger, and so during the hunting season, I'm out actually contacting hunters and making sure that they're following the state of Alaska and and federal hunting hunting and fishing regulations. And so 
I'm busy. I'm too darn busy to go to Chitna and dip net, you know, for several days and, and put up a bunch of fish, smoke fish, dry fish, you know, canned fish. But I love doing those things. A lot of people here do have gardens, and many of them catch salmon or hunt an occasional moose. A few raise chickens or ducks, um, and most of us have compost piles. We pretty much all harvest local wood to burn as well. But on the whole, the idea of living subsistence is more of a goal than a reality, especially as access has become easier and the economy has shifted. Here's my partner, Ian Giori. Ideally, you, you move out here and you think about the romantic idea of having this massive garden and going out and shooting a moose or getting some sheep and catching a bunch of salmon and putting all of that up for the winter and just sort of sustaining yourself. But that is way too much work to sort of pull off if you actually have a job in the summer. There's poor soil quality, a short growing season, and a lack of generational knowledge to contend with. There's no wisdom of Alaska Native cultures rooted in the community to be passed down. It's mostly a bunch of transplants here, like Kristen and Greg. Do you guys hunt or fish at all? Yes, we hunt and fish very unsuccessfully. <laughs> a few spruce hens have been killed for sure. We've definitely killed a few of those. <laughs> We've killed a few salmon. Um, I'd say the larger hoofed animals have pretty much escaped unscathed. Um, I grew up hunting white-tailed deer and I grew up fishing, but we just, we haven't prioritized it and we haven't been successful when we have tried. But it's room for improvement. But the animals are doing good. <laughs> no animals are killed, harmed in the filming of this show. <laughs> okay, don't get me wrong. It certainly can be a comedy of errors, a whole lot of floundering and wishing and dreaming for a romantic vision that will probably never happen. Maybe it will. And there's plenty of people who don't have that romantic vision at all. They're out here to live frugally and escape taxes, and they don't really think about their impact on the environment that much. But there are certainly people out here who successfully live off the land, at least in part. Like David Rowland and his wife, Hannah. David grew up here and his father taught him to hunt. He and his wife um, just built their house and they're planning to grow their own garden, raise honeybees. Partly because it's affordable and partly because... We're called to be stewards of the land if you look back in Genesis. So I, I believe that good conservation does include harvesting some animals, but it has to be done in a way that's that sustains the herd numbers so like like there's too many bears and they're killing off all the moose so you got to take some of them too so it's important to me to to help the wildlife out and it provides food if done in a proper manner there's also people here who identify strongly with the environmental movement People have done everything they can to avoid consumer culture and to leave as small of a footprint as possible. Like Mark Vale. He has a huge garden, cans and preserves, fishes and hunts. And that's not to say he doesn't buy anything from elsewhere. I eat chocolate, you know. And it's like, I know that chocolate's not even coming from the United States. It's not like I'm a purist, but... That doesn't mean I still can't work to the extent I can. Same thing with coffee beans. You know, there's certain things, it's like you get a taste for it 
And there's certain things. You can't grow mass grains here. So my grains come from elsewhere. You know, I like to say I buy beans. Coffee beans, dry beans, cocoa beans. <laughs> They're small and transportable. He lives his life based on a philosophy. Because of where I live in the subarctic, I see global climate change in action. And I can see the impact that humans are having on the natural environment. I was coming of age as the environmental movement started. And it had a, a big impact on my thinking about what I could do as an individual. I've always had this lean towards conservation, which is conservation of resources, like using them wisely and preserving, you know, the natural environment because I, I myself recognize that my existence is due to the natural environment, that the natural environment isn't due to me. We have to get our perspective straight about how we exist in this world. It's like we could easily leave this world and the world would be better for it to some extent. But we could also live here and, and use the resources wisely and have you know, a good life. For 20 years, he lived on less than $3,000 a year. But slowly I realized that when I ate from the land, when I ate from the garden that I grew, and I picked berries and, and fished, and hunted from stuff that came directly out of my environment close by, that I was part of the environment where I lived. Where if you live in the city and you're eating cantaloupe in January, your body is actually part of the environment of Mexico or Chile. And so your network is so stretched out and thin that most people can't picture what their actual impact is. It's looking at how that whole system works and trying to shorten the cycles. Because if you can shorten the cycles, you can make it a looped system. Like you can compost and put it back in the garden and grow more vegetables from you know the waste materials. I've learned through practice that the easier you are on the environment, the more likely it is to stay the same and that people following you will be able to have the same kind of experiences I've had. Chasing that bear out of the yard with that shovel is a pretty good story. Uh, no. I mean, my first summer is the only brown bear that I've seen in the yard, and he was just on, on the other side of, of my burn barrel, and he was just doing his thing, snortling around, and I just came out of, out of my cabin and saw him, and, I mean, I was right there by my cabin, so I had a place to go to if it hadn't have gone right, but... I don't even think I had a shovel. You've made that no, up. No, you did. I just yelled at him, and he did the exact 
right thing. He ran off, so she it's not really... the grizzly out of the yard it's with a not, shovel. It, okay. <laughs> He's embellishing the story, no, so... No, he's not. <laughs> Part three, wildlife. In January, I was heading out by snow machine to do an interview for this podcast. Miles from anyone's house that was inhabited anyway, I came to a screeching halt. Because there, nibbling on some trees, was a moose. They look a lot like teenagers that haven't grown into their limbs yet. They're kind of cute. But they aren't quite as harmless. They can be unpredictable and can stomp you if they want to. And so I shut off the snow machine. The moose stared at me, I stared at him, and then he started walking my way. Which could be no big deal in this situation, except for two things. The road I was on was a single snow machine track wide, and the snow machine I was on didn't have reverse. Snow machines are the same thing as snowmobiles. And so, began a dance. <laughs> me turning the thing around by hand, which is no easy feat for me anyway, then driving back toward home a bit moose going off in the woods, me turning it back around, moose coming back out of the woods. I called Kristen, the person I was going to interview, to let her know I might not make it, and she said she usually just revs the engine a bit and scares them off. But I still had Greg Fensterman's story playing fresh in my head at that point. I mean, I saw a video once of a guy. I mean, this guy was on a snow machine riding down the trail, pulls up short. There's a moose, you know, just like 20 yards away on the trail. Instead of just like backing up or whatever, you know, he like slowly advances on, he keeps advancing on this moose. Well, eventually he got so close, the moose just charged him and like just ran right up the hood of his snow machine and over the guy's head. It's like, well, of course, you know, you're an idiot. You know, what do you think was gonna happen? You're crowding him. Okay, I did actually rub it a bit, but apparently not enough to scare it off. And then, just when I'd called to say the interview was off, the moose disappeared for good. That's the thing about living with wildlife. It can be unpredictable, and it takes patience again. Sometimes, things just have to wait. Here's Gary Green. I don't think I would ever want it any other way, because that's is a spice of life. If you live in what would be an absolute, total safe environment where nothing could ever go wrong to you and all that, and you accept that every day nothing could go wrong, you lose feelings. Um, but if you go for a walk down a trail through the woods or on a river bank, and you might encounter a grizzly bear walking the other way, your body's charged up and prepared. Your adrenaline flows differently, and I... I feel that a person is supposed to have a certain amount of threats and uh, and keep your senses sharp. That's why I live in the wild too, is because it is wild. It's unpredictable, and wildlife, bigger and more powerful than myself, is part of that. Because he's had plenty of encounters, much more interesting and probably terrifying than my little moose dance. I've been charged by bears a, a few times. I've had to shoot bears opening my door in my cabin. I've got bullet holes in the do front door. And I have was in a pros 
inspecting cabin one time when I was reading an old magazine with a an old captain's chair leaned up against the door because the windows were on both sides of the door and my chair rocked forward while I was reading and I, I just what's that and I turned my head to just look out the window at the same time the bear that was trying to push the door open had moved over to look in the window too and we're just like nose to nose looking through the glass I don't really think he saw me I recognized him but he just turned and walked away Much more often than not, wandering through the woods, you don't actually encounter anything here. But occasionally, I will get that pins and needles feeling that people associate with ghosts. Like something is out there. One time, it definitely was a bear on the other side of a tiny creek staring at me. I didn't have bear spray or a gun or a dog or another person. But... Even in those situations, it usually goes fine. You make some noise, they run one way, and you walk the other. Here's Allie Towers. I went hiking one time with a group of people, and we saw this black bear right on the side of the trail. And all of us just stopped and, like, started backing away. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to scare it. So I was like, hey, bear, get out of here. And then this one guy, this random guy, was like, no, don't scare it away. I'm like, are you crazy? You want this bear to come up to us? But that bear didn't care at all. He just looked at us and took a big dump and then kept walking. (laughs) If you watch reality television, wolves hunt people on a regular basis in Alaska, and surviving an encounter with a grizzly bear is rare. But in reality, Kristen says... Our culture kind of sensationalizes them. I know so many people come out here and they're just like terrified of bears the whole time. And I think that's a shame. And it's not like something you shouldn't be mindful of. But I don't know. That's part of like the magic of being here and, and being close to the wilderness is that there are those animals around. I love animals. It's about learning how to live with them. Here's Greg Fensterman again. You can usually avoid serious entanglements with bears by just understanding some basic things about their behavior and what makes them tick. I mean, I remember my first ever close encounter with a bear, which was pretty horrifying. Uh, you know, since then, I've had dozens of close encounters with bears. And, you know, once you get familiar, you feel more secure and, you know, you have successful outcomes. And like, okay, you know, you start to, to understand. When you think about living out here and the, the risk factors, say, they're not really even on my list much. He's more terrified of a house fire, of a medical emergency, of sliding down a rocky slope on a hike through rough terrain. So your chances of getting killed in a car accident are way higher than getting mauled by a bear. But still, here's Carla Freewalds. People would always say, yeah, but you're so much more likely to get in a car accident, you know, in somewhere else. And I was like, that that doesn't matter. I'm still scared of them. (laughs) Yes, that is a very logical explanation. That's very logical thing to say, but I still need to get there on my own. The first summer I was out here, a bear came to the cabin and we had salmon outside in a cooler. And so it was, you know, a dumb thing. Like, I would never do that now knowing what I know. But the bear came and jumped on the porch. It was looking in the windows. I called Martin. I was like, there's a bear, you know. He said, well, can you go outside and shoot? Maybe that will scare it. And So I'm new to bears, and I'm new to shooting. And I was like, I'm going to kill someone. <laughs> and he's like, just point it. 
off over the road, you know, no one lives over there. Just don't point it at Jurgen's house. So I fired and the bear went away and I was definitely a little shaken up. But um, last summer, I was here alone for the first time for an extended period of time. And I swear to God, at first I did not even want to go outside because I just didn't have enough experience. Like, I thought bears would come around the corner, like, and surprise you and be like, boo, you know? (laughs) I needed to see more bears, ironically, to see, like, they almost always run away anyway. Except sometimes. I think over time, the more familiarity you have with the landscape and the animals, the better that becomes. But still, walking around in the dark, you hear things, you smell things, and they get to your head, and, you know, it can be scary. And I think that in some regards, I could be a little more cautious than I am. I think that sometimes you can fall into a false sense of security about it because you don't run into bears or moose every day. Um, So one year, there was one that just would not leave the neighborhood. It was getting into people's stuff. People were chasing it off. Dogs were chasing it off. People were shooting guns in the air to chase it off, and it would always come back. And one day, after a number of us had discussed it, it just had to be dealt with. I woke up to it rooting around in my storage shed, and uh, it was a grizzly, and I... I shot it. My, my neighbor's dog was about two feet from its head, barking at it wildly, and it was just ignoring it. So I felt like there was really no choice, and it was unfortunate, super unfortunate, but it had to be done. We had decided, and uh, I did. Those are the unfortunate situations that we can find ourselves in out here. The demise of these beautiful creatures that really deserve this space more than we do. Living around bears, there's a level of responsibility that you have to take on that in this community is a source of conflict, uh, for sure. Um, There's a a lot of new people that come to live here and they've not lived around bears and you can't leave your, your garbage out on your porch. You can't leave your cooler out on your porch. You can't Leave your dog food out. Stevens is the area's lead law enforcement ranger for the park. And he's sometimes the only regulator around. He can enforce state and federal hunting regulations, and he can try to educate people in the community and visitors about bear safety. But he can't really go up to somebody's private property and tell them to put their salmon back in their house. If you aren't living in a way that ensures that bears aren't going to get food or garbage from you, then you're disrespecting the community because we are a group of people that live out here together. Nobody wants to be the cop of your neighbor. That's the issue, is when somebody that lives down the road from you for the second time had the bear get into the cooler on the front porch and eat the ham, And the first time they told you about it and you're like, well, dang, that's a bummer. But what you were thinking was, well, what the heck were you thinking? You can't leave your cooler with the ham on your front porch in August when the bears are cruising around. Um, And then it happens again. You've got to say, hey, you know, this is a problem because 
Now you've fed that bear two hams. <laughs> and it's going to walk down the road and it's going to come on my porch looking for my ham, which I don't have a ham on my front porch, but I've got a window that a bear can push right in and waltz right into my living room while I'm in the bed. And then I'm shooting it. You know, a bear breaks into my house. That's going to be a dead bear. And it might not be because I attracted it, but it's because it associated my cabin with the potential of for a ham for a, of a ham mm-hmm. yummy or even cottage cheese which is quite a bit less yummy but still pretty tasty to a bear if they're hungry that's the thing in this place where there's no local governance or city ordinances where many people would not call it a community the bears might lose It's the price you pay for freedom, I guess. You've been listening to Out Here, a podcast about life at the end of the road in McCarthy. Next up on episode six, Making Community. When you live in town, you can choose your friends from your small little pool of people that are like you. Well, you can't do that here because really nobody's just like you. (laughs) You can listen to all the episodes, look at the episode notes and some photos of the beautiful landscape at www.outherepodcast.com. Thanks to Galen Huckins and Blue Dot Sessions for the music, to Ian Giori for the artwork, and to Scott Swafford and my University of Missouri Master's Committee for the support, and to the Duffy Fund for giving me some money. For Out Here, I'm Erin McKinstry. <laughs>